0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Jimmy Lelumier, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. New York punk musician, as well as a writer and uh, broadcaster, journalist, and much, much more. He was in a band called, um, well, Jimmy Lelumier and the Psychotic Frogs, um, who appear here, there and everywhere. Anyway, this is the interview, so I won't go on and on because you'll find out more about Jimmy throughout this. Anyway, after a very long um, introduction with each other that I've edited out. It was good, but it's um, not the best bit But well, it was quite nice. Um, but we then got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years of Jimmy's life. Jimmy, I've told you mine. You tell me yours. It's over to you.
1: Well, well, I'm a bit older than you, young man. Um, <laughs> I was born in 1952. I'm told I don't look it, but I and I certainly don't act it. But uh, my feet know what time it is. I'm in healthcare now during the day right, and um, I'm uh, working in a dementia unit during COVID, which is very interesting. And I've always had a daytime job, not always in healthcare, but no. I've always had a daytime job to finance my nighttime adventures in the music business starting in the 1960s. What year were you born? What 64
0: year? 64 was my was my Oh, moment. so
1: I was already gearing up to uh, start making my way into Manhattan because i live on long island all the way out uh it's a, it's a tributary it's part of new york state but it's an actual island which connects to manhattan and um it's as far as deep into the woods as rural as possible especially in the 1950s when people were just starting to move from the city out to the wide open spaces on long island right so as as a child growing up fascinated with pop culture, which for me back then was getting a copy of the record Lollipop by the Cordettes. And um, things like that, early uh, pop records from the 1950s and being surrounded by that as a young kid at the same time as being exposed to classical music, which my mom would bring home from the supermarket where they had these low budget versions of classical recordings. And she knew that I liked music, so I had a classical exposure. At the same time, that I discovered the world of pop culture very early on, and um,
0: so were your parents. Not a, were your parents slightly? I wouldn't say bohemian, but were they quite cultured and educated?
1: Not at all. Not at all. Not not whatsoever. Neither of my parents got very far in school. They were uh, Depression era. And they didn't even make it you know, well past into the sixth or seventh grade here because right. they had to go out and work during the depression years. And they were kind of, I won't say anti-culture, but they were, they were anti-culture. <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, in fact, everybody that I was surrounded by was anti-culture. They almost kind of celebrated, I don't want to say their ignorance, but I'm afraid I just said it, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and as a result of that, because I knew I was, I came into the world as a different strain from the rest of everybody else. Right. And yes. I was a, I was attracted I was attracted to cultural things. They resonated with me early on. I became an avid reader. I became a writer early on, and um, you all of that? And I go ahead.
0: I was going to say, were you? A bit later on, did you suddenly pick up on things like the Beat Generation, with you know Ginsberg and Kerouac and um, you know Burroughs? Were people like that sort of coming? Well, well,
1: that that was coming onto my line of focus. But um, I was thirteen years old in nineteen sixty-five, and that was a very magical year to be thirteen years old. I had a transistor radio, one of those little tinny, small speaker radios. And the big music station in New York was 77 WABC AM, which kind of ruled the East Coast. Their nighttime DJ was a very famous American DJ called Cousin Brucie, who's still active and still very well known. And Mary the K, uh, who was called the Fifth Beatle, had been on 1010 Winds, WINS, all AM radio at the time. FM had not really come into vogue yet in terms of getting into households. So I would just be in constant in my room with my little transistor radio out on Long Island, far away from the action, listening to all this energy coming out of Manhattan, listening to these fantastic records from the UK and from Detroit, the Motown thing, which I became a huge Motown uh, head. And to this day, uh, still am. And um, I found out that I was a bit more fabulous, shall we say, than everybody else in town. I started appearing in plays in school early on. And I was always the showstopper, the one upstaging everybody. Look at me, look at me. So I was, I was cut from a very different cloth than everybody else in my house at that time.
0: Well yes. And yes, I celebrated so. it.
1: I, I celebrated it, you know, um the world of pop culture was the pop culture was changing the world in the 1960s including what was coming out of Liverpool what was coming out of um, what was coming out of the UK and out of Detroit and the type of artists that were n- starting to happen the beatles represented a threat when they were new they uh, they, re- they the american parents were frightened of them and especially the rolling stones yes. and the motown artists because they were black in the 1960s becoming superstars was also viewed upon as something threatening because of inherent racism. So I had all of these different things swirling around me and I embraced everything coming out of pop culture. I started writing about it for my school newspapers. And as a result of those school newspapers, I was encouraged to send some of the things I was writing to record labels. Because at that time, the promotion department's biggest job was to get records out to anybody that would write about the record in the 60s because it was just vinyl back then and they needed quotable quotes and they needed to create a a storm and I picked up on how all of that worked very early on and uh, started writing for local music magazines including one called Good Times which I started writing for in the 1960s while just coming out of high school and I still write for it to this day finding out that In a house where we didn't have a lot of money, my house started getting inundated with boxes full of records, (laughs) free promotional records. And my parents thought I was joining what they called record clubs, that it was gonna cost money. And I said, no, it does not cost money. I'm promoting these records. They had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) It was so off their radar, but I was suddenly getting invited to shows in Manhattan to interview people. I actually took it upon myself to contact Cousin Brucey at WABC and go up there and interview him in Manhattan. And the same with the late Murray the K. I did the very last interview with him. I became a very push forward type of person. Yes. I, I did not take no for an answer. I'm very diplomatic and I'm very soft spoken. But at the same time, I'm a battering ram, if you <laughs> can comprehend that.
0: I'm
1: a battering ram in in disguise because I come across as very soft-spoken, but at the same time, as you're finding out, I never let anyone get a word in it edgewise. But I'm going to allow <laughs> you to do that right now, since it's your show.
0: It's, no, it's fine. But then, you know, you said 65 was this kind of one moment. But then 67, you're probably 15 by then. And then there's the yes. song of love, you know. And, and oh, yes. The hippies.
1: the hippies.
0: The hippies. The hippie scene is kind of happening in, on the West Coast. Obviously, you had the factory and Andy Warhol. Then you had the sort of fan, um, you know, theater companies like the Coquettes, Over on the west coast, who were doing
1: their. Well, that's a little bit. That's a little bit later on. That's later sixties. Yeah, later. Right. So that's a couple more years towards the very tail end. And at that point, I started running down the block from my house and picking up a publication called the Village Voice, which was a weekly Manhattan-based newspaper with some of the most amazing writers that are well known now. And the Village Voice detailed all of those things: Warhol, Max's. Uh, the politics, and it just filled my head, and I just absorbed it all, and I became the only person in Suffolk County on Long Island that was really deep into it. I, I felt like a stranger in a strange land, as the uh, as the saying goes. Yes. I completely ensconced myself into it, and I was I was adopted by all of these people. They saw I was coming towards it with a pure heart, and that I was totally devoted to the change that pop culture was causing on society worldwide through popular music, through films, through television, through writing and publications, that's how you change the world. That's why right-wing people are so down on cultural things that they try to suppress media, they try to suppress newspapers, they try to uh, terrorize people into, because they know how powerful music, film, theater, writing. What we're doing right now changes things for people every every moment that they're exposed to anything, including this type of a discussion that we're having right now, that people will hear that and get inspired by it. And maybe some kid who's 15 years old listening to it decides, well, I'm going to try and do something like that. And I've actually had young people through the decades come up to me. They're on Facebook with me all the time saying, Jimmy, you turned me on to this when you were the head of the Sam Goody music chain in, in, on Long Island, which was a major record store chain, sort of like the chains that you had in the UK back in the day when yeah. vinyl ruled. I immediately got a job at Sam Goody, which was one of like what Tower Records was on the West Coast, Sam Goody was on the East Coast. And I became a record department manager early on by buying a Joe Briath album because I was the only person on Long Island that bought the album by Joe Bryant, who was a glitter glam person. And when I walked into Sam Goodies with my gigantic Italian afro and giant pink platform shoes and orange pants and a green top, they were like, what is this? <laughs> Meaning me. But the cashier, when I put, brought the Joe Bryant album, she said, you know, Electra Records spent a fortune Supporting this album and nobody's buying it. You're the only person buying it. Why are you buying this album to which I replied? Well, somebody has to (laughs) They hired me on the spot Yeah, I was floor help I became floor help and in six months I was department manager and I used that position to push my musical champions the New York Dolls Bowie T-Rex Everything that was coming out of Manhattan, everything that was coming out of London, I was bringing in import records and kids that came into the store back then that weren't being exposed to that anywhere else, write to me on Facebook now or email me and tell me the influence that I had on them, turning them on to things because radio in America studiously homophobically avoided all of those artists. David Bowie couldn't get played in America until he went disco. He could not get played. In fact, I'm gonna tell a Cherry Vanilla story. Oh, nice. Which she, which now she disowns and she doesn't, I know she doesn't like me to tell it, but um, Sherry told me, cousin Brucie in the small world department, which is that guy in New York who was the top DJ on the, the, the East Coast. Sherry's job when she was hired by main man was to promote David's records. And Sherry would do anything to promote those records. And when I say anything, you can use your imagination and a copy of that book that you have to figure out what that means. So Sherry spent a lovely night with Cousin Brucie at the very ritzy Plaza Hotel in Manhattan on main man's expense account. And then she called him Monday, the day before the weekly, music meeting for WABC to decide which records they're going to add to the survey, to the chart that week. And she said, hey, Bruce, you know, um, we had a great night last night, and I'd really appreci- appreciate it if you could add Bowie's record, because Space Oddity was already in Billboard's top 20 nationally and should have been getting played on that station, because if you're in the top 20, you should be getting airplay. Yes. And Bruce, and Brucey said to Cherry, I can't play that record for the kids that listen to my show. The man's a homosexual. To which Cherry replied, well, Bruce, if you don't play the record, your wife's going to find out that you're not a homosexual. <laughs> in other words, that things got a little friendly. And the very next day, WABC added Space Oddity to their playlist. So, And Sherry did a similar thing with another friend of mine in radio on, in the Midwest. Who, when I mentioned her name, he cringed and told me the story that she got "Space Oddity" played in the Midwest. So Cherry worked her way from coast to coast, and "Space Oddity" became David Bowie's first top forty record in America. Thank you, Cherry Vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> and she'll shoot me, but I mean, I remember her telling me the story, and yes. she'll get over it. I have, yeah. I have, I've got I... lots of stories.
0: Well, I, I I've could got imagine. lots That'd... of stories.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you? But go ahead.
0: Did you sense, though, because you're at that kind of a perfect age to sort of have that moment where, because that 60s into the 70s, because I spoke to quite a few people who were part of the scene in the 60s. And I sort of asked them, you know, what happened to you in the 70s? Because you slightly disappeared. And they said, well, to be honest, after about five years, we were just tired. We just couldn't keep it going anymore. And, you know, literally they had that. Meaning.
1: Now, how do you mean? You mean people that were into music or that were. You're talking about what specifically?
0: Well, I suppose it was people, there was a guy called Barry Miles who was who did the International Times. He was involved with the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, Ali Pali in 1967. And he ran a sort of, I think, a bookshop and they had exhibitions and they did, you know, these kind of performance art events that people like John Lennon would go to and Yoko Ono. And they were, you know, so he was right there in the 60s, you know, or in London, the underground, probably more than anything Mm. else, but hugely influential. But then in the 70s, it's like, where did Barry and where did all that gang go? And they just literally don't appear again, that's it. And when I bumped into him, because there was an exhibition at the, the V&A in London, something about, so you want a revolution, which was talking about the 60s. And I sort of did an interview with him and various other people like Joe Boyd, who did the early, you know, produce people like the um, Pink Floyd and Nick Drake and the Incredible String Band and various people like that. There was, you know, people have their time and that is... Mm-hmm. Yes. But you obviously... Too, were too young to say well that's it that's the 60s number well two.
1: first of all first of all bear in mind as I told you I was writing for music papers so as long as you continue to write for music papers which I have done through the decades you stay on the merry-go-round you don't get off of the ride you go for another spin on the roller coaster mm. I never got off they as creative artists which I became in the 70s Uh, when they're through creating, they're through creating. But as someone writing about culture, you don't ever have to stop, and I still haven't. I still write rhythm tracking, which is a column I've been writing for decades and doing feature interviews and all sorts of things. So I never got off the roller coaster. I'm always curious to see where it's going to lead. I was so excited by the 60s political thing, changing the world. And I was interested in seeing it change the world in terms of race, in terms of gender issues, in terms of everything. And all of that led to the 70s where all of those things happened. All of those things happened. Main Man in particular, when I first became aware of David Bowie and then became a Bowie boy at that time, the famous Bowie boys, and then being in New York and being the sly devil that I am, immediately made contact with Main Man as they set up shop in New York and got myself invited up there to write about Bowie and Mick Ronson and Amanda Lear and Wayne County. I was present at the the presentation at the Westbeth Theater, Wayne County at the Trucks, which was a massive uh, extravaganza when Main Man signed this wild creature um, who I've managed for decades now and is one of my closest friends to this day. Jane and I are still, you know. But it, it, to me, it was amazing, first of all, that I would get invited to these things and then suddenly, as a fan, become great friends with Jane County, with Cherry Vanilla, with Angie Bowie, or you know, everybody that I still keep in touch with. It's just, I guess it's something in how I present and a determination that I have uh, that has kept that going for me through decades, because I come to it with a good heart, and I guess they can tell when you're just a loud mouth and you know you're just trying to cover a thing or get in free somewhere, as opposed to if it's a lifelong endeavor. And for me, it's been a lifelong endeavor, and I think people sense that, and as a result, you know, I've gotten to become close and work. With, with, um, with,
0: yes, with and how, and sort uh, of going some, and going back to that period, you know, because it's kind of a fascinating time, you know, talking about David Bowie, because during the '60s, you know, the work mm-hmm. that he did and the things that he tried. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact of what happens next, you know, all that would have just kind of been sort of happily sort of pushed to the back of the cupboard and and forgot. possibly because yeah. when because when mm-hmm. you listen to it, what's kind of boggling to me is that like you're thinking at that time when he was releasing some of that stuff in the '60s with various bands. Um, you know, there was like the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, the Jefferson Airplane, this incredible music. And you're thinking, you know, that was so not of its kind of even close to what was happening on the music scene, which is quite interesting because you, you, you know, you listen to these kind of rather quirky quaint and slightly forgettable songs and then you sort of hear you know Purple Haze and you're thinking well this is I think I don't know what you're up to and then he sort of you know has this kind of relationship with people like Lindsay Kemp and then he meets Angie Bowie who has a big influence and then Mick Ronson then he has you know Lawrence Mayers who is kind of his early manager and then Tony DeVries so you must Mm -hmm. have seen this kind of transformation of a person who was going nowhere fast to suddenly this like unbelievable creative person. You know, did, how, what did well, you sort of I'll, make at that period?
1: I'll, I'll tell you how I got turned on to Bowie. Um, Gloria Stavers turned me on to David Bowie in the pages of 16 Magazine. 16 Magazine was the first US-based and possibly anywhere-based teen publication in the late 1950s when Elvis Presley was making big news she was commissioned to uh, do a one-off publication about Elvis with a glossy cover and what have you, and the thing just sold tons and tons of copies. So as a result, the publisher told her to do something else to get the kids to buy a magazine again, and she created 16 magazine uh, which she used as a weapon to sell. What's on top of the chart? She welcomed the Beatles uh, to America. The Beatles were sold to America in the pages of Sixteen Magazine, um, and that continued right through um, from bubblegum groups like the Partridge Family and the Osmonds and what have you. She is this the, is this the one that Danny Fields but, works on? Danny Danny took over. Danny took over Sixteen when Gloria became ill and sadly passed away. Uh, hmm. But I was working. I was writing for one of my college publications, and I had written an article about jazz, and I let, made it clear that jazz was not my thing. And this, this world-famous bass player was the head of the jazz department at the college. Sonny Dallas was his name. He has since passed. He came to the office where I was working. I thought he was gonna knock my head off for the things that I said in my review of Thad Jones and Mel Lewis who are highly regarded jazz Musicians. But he sat with me and we chatted. And when we were all done, he said, Well, if you could interview anybody in the world, who would you like that to be? And I think he was waiting for me to say Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. I said, Gloria Stavers. And he said, Gloria Stavers. And I said, She's the, he goes, I know who she is. Why her? I said, Because the stars come and go, but the star makers stay in place. Well, as it turns out, this guy was great friends with Gloria Stavers. Now, if you ever saw the movie The Devil Wears Prada mm-hmm. about the, the, the impenetrable diva, Gloria Stavers had that that thing going on in Manhattan. She was impenetrable because everybody wanted something from her because 16 Magazine was selling millions of copies every month. Yes. You know, once the Beatles hit, especially. Sonny Dallas, who was one of her jazz friends, called her up and said, there's this kid. And he said this, what what I told you, I said to him. Mm. And he's the real thing. She invited me up to the impenetrable offices of 16 Magazine. She took me under her wing like a mother hen. And that was like a monumental moment for me. Gloria wrote about David Bowie in 16 Magazine. She wrote about the fugs in 16 Magazine, mixed in with all the bubblegum, she would write about the Grateful Dead or she would write about a new Bob Dylan album. She used the cachet of a bubblegum magazine to turn those bubblegum kids onto Frank Zappa. She used that power to cover both worlds, to help them transition from bubblegum to heavy duty stuff. And one of the people she wrote about was David Bowie. Yeah. And when Gloria wrote, when Gloria wrote about David Bowie, that opened up my eyes and I became a Bowie boy because she was the hippest, the hippest person I have ever met and uh, the biggest influence that I've ever had. And when she passed in the early eighties, it was devastating to me, uh, you know, uh, yes. way too soon. Absolutely. But she left her mark on me and I feel like I carry a little bit of her with me and everything that I do. Yeah. And, um, so I became a Bowie boy, I did the research, I found out about Tony DeVries, I found out about the cast of Pork, many of whom became friends of mine. I'm Facebook friends with Tony Zanetta, Vanella I keep in touch with all the time, Jane I manage, I mean, and on and on and on, Lee Childers I you know was friends with before he passed. And I made my way up to Main Man the same way that I made my way up to 16 Magazine and the same way I made my way up to Cousin Brucey I came in very humble, but with an agenda.
0: Yes, And I always
1: managed managed to get in there and it's something I've always been able to do. It's just, I guess, the cosmic forces of how I present that uh, allows me to make my way past the velvet rope all the time, if you know what I mean.
0: Which is good. But you, unlike someone like Danny Sugarman, who got a bit carried away when he worked with The Doors and then becomes a junkie, You sort of work with Mm. the most extreme characters in showbiz and, you know, and also there was nothing before them particularly. So you can go, oh, look, let's see what happens to this kind of world like you can now. go, Oh, dear, it's not going to end well, is it? (laughs) You know, if if someone's doing A, B and C, you think, yeah, okay, this is not going to end well because we've got the experience. But back then there was not much to look back on and think. You know, Elvis was still vaguely doing his thing, and and the Beatles had only just broken up in sort of 1970. So there wasn't a lot of things. But then you meet this kind of crazy gang of people like Mainman and and as you know, listen to those interviews. But let me
1: tell. But but let me tell you. I was fascinated with film. I would sit in front of the TV and watch black and white. Films from the 30s and 40s with over-the-top creatures like Mae West, and all of these really larger-than-life, buxom and and bold character actors and actresses. And I saw that in Main Man. I saw the perpetuation of that into rock and roll. Right. I saw Jane Count. I saw Jane County as Mae West basically, and Cherry <laughs> had a little bit of Mae West, and not just Mae West, but in other words, I incorporated in my mind already what Bowie did the incorporation of theater and film into rock and roll. And I was ready to receive that information because I was a pop culture junkie, not just pop music, pop culture, theater, film, books, everything, I absorbed it. And I saw that it all had its place, including its place in rock and roll. And Mm -hmm. Main Man really was kind of a manifestation of that as far as I was concerned.
0: But it's interesting because, as you would have known, everything kind of ends in tears, doesn't it? Because I remember...
1: Yeah, well, yes. Because yes. I, I did a, a,
0: an interesting interview with Lawrence Mayers, who'd been pulled over to, to, to sometimes sort of in the mid-70s, to talk to both David Bowie and Tony DeFriese in a hotel room in, I think, L.A. And um, it didn't go well because they were sort of trying to have this divorce between them and, and Lawrence was asked to do something by Bowie's management that he just said, basically fuck off and walked off, walked out of the meeting, saying, "I'm not going to agree to this."
1: Right? So, yeah, that was a Yeah,
0: everything kind of ends. Like it is, doesn't it?
1: Well, for main man, um, unfortunately, uh, yes, and I'm sure it's well known uh, uh, how things turned out for a lot of the main man crew um, once. Uh, Main Man was decided to well, I will say it stopped. A Bowie's association with Main Man stopped because I remained a main man person after Bowie. I was there when they introduced this because I was friends with everybody up in the office. Dory, who has passed away, and Marilyn and a lot of the, the great people that were up there. But Defreeze wanted to find the next Bowie and he signed this kid from the Midwest named Johnny Cougar. And I went up there when they had the first album, Main Street Incident and all of this. And Johnny Cougar, this pinup, eventually of course became John Cougar Mellencamp. Now just John Mellencamp. And and I have to say, De sure knew how to pick them because as the successor to Bowie, which everybody laughed, Johnny Cougar, he's a giant in music for decades now, Mellencamp. And and DeFries found him and selected him out. So I have to give Tony Dupree's credit that he, he knew how to pick them for a while there. Yeah. Um, and that, and that continued after uh, I stayed with main man right through Donna Destry, who um, was one of the last main man signings. She did a, a techno ish club version of rebel rebel decades later with man parish um, who had scored in the UK with male stripper. Yeah.
0: And
1: uh and also was a Main Man artist. And I stayed with the concept. I loved the idea of Main Man. It was like a Hollywood studio. Bowie was gone. Well, see you, Dave, because I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I remained a Dave Bowie fan in spite of the way Vanilla and Jane and people like that were handled and, and, and dealt a bad hand. I was the one, um, I was invited by Main Man. I went up to see a production when they signed Wayne County. As a main man artist. And we went to a show called Wayne County at the Trucks, which was held all the way downtown at the West Bend Theater. And (laughs) it was overwhelming. First of all, the subject matter of County's songs at that time, pre-punk rock and pre-hip-hop, songs like If You Don't Wanna Fuck Me, Baby, Fuck Off, Queen Age Baby, Stick It In Me, It Takes a Man Like Me to Find a Woman Like Me. I was like, holy cow and the visual of how the then Wayne used to present, it just made, as I said in print, it made David Bowie standing next to Wayne County look like John Denver in comparison, <laughs> like a country bumpkin. And I also pointed out, because Wayne County at the Trucks, Wayne had a very theatrical background as part of that Warhol crowd that Pork to London. Wayne County at the Trucks featured scenery movable scenery for each for each new song costume changes unheard of for rock and roll the band was over to the side and wayne was front and center like a broadway production (laughs) yes i was i was amazed and i was the one who first blew the whistle and brought it to jane's attention and in print that when i saw david bowie's diamond dog show and they never allowed Wayne County at the Trucks to be released. It stayed in the can with Wayne's little songs about gender confusion and nobody's sure if you're a boy or a girl type of thing. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the Diamond Dog Show shows up with a song Rebel Rebel, which has a very trans Jane County feel and subject matter line uh what's the most famous line you've got your mother in a whirl she's not sure if you're a boy or a girl bowie never wrote lyrics like that before wayne county he was writing about space (laughs) cosmic yeah you know and then all of a sudden and david does the diamond dork show in manhattan and guess what david's front and center the band is off to the side of the stage there's movable scenery it's wayne county at the trucks with a budget and in in my opinion And it's only my opinion. The Wayne County film, which was never released, was used as a prototype to study that it could be done, to put the singer front and center, not with the band around him, which was traditional rock and roll, but the band off to the side like Broadway. They did that with Wayne County at the Trucks. movable scenery for each song, for Diamond Dogs. They did that at Wayne County at the Trucks, main man. It was no coincidence. And I don't think Rebel Rebel was a coincidence either. David's homage to Wayne, possibly, but I don't think so because as time went by, David had unflattering things to say about everybody that was associated with Main Man once he split from Main Man. And he has a right to say that, and I have a right to bring it to light because I was there in the midst of it as it was all happening and I remember it very clearly in the same way that Hedwig and the Angry Inch uh, when that popped up, I recognized immediately, which Bowie supported, he was there. He was he was an active, avid supporter of Hedwig and the Angry Inch about a transgendered glam into punk creature that's struggling, uh, playing little clubs while this character, Johnny Genosis, I'm sure you saw Hedwig or if you're familiar with Hedwig, yeah. claims to have influenced this character. I'm watching this and I'm like, "Oh my god, it's the Jane County story." It's the Jane County story. Johnny Gnosis is David Bowie. Jane is Hedwig. The same visual, the same, I mean, everything. When I saw it on stage, I was I was livid. And they've never acknowledged it. But, you know, this this sort of thing happened because Jane was signed just as many people were signed to Main Man, and they were not given the full support. Yes. Wayne County at the Trucks, which was filmed was so over the top that if they had released that in the 70s on the midnight movie circuit, the way John Waters films with Divine were playing in theaters at midnight, midnight movies making a fortune and yeah. lots of these way over the top things. Wayne County at the trucks would have made millions of dollars over the years as, as a, people would not have believed their eyes and ears as to the material. And there was nobody else. There was no trans rocker. No. Not no. to the to the level of Wayne County on the cover of Melody Maker. There's the notorious cover of Melody Maker with the, and there was nothing like that. And I think Bowie actually felt overshadowed, in my opinion. Yeah. That the the spotlight was being taken away by this creature.
0: Absolutely. So, then, so yeah, to, I have no
1: problem. Go ahead. I'm I was sorry. going to
0: say. So what happened to? Why did? Why why was it always kind of put in the can and and never given a release was there because. Why was it?
1: Mick Ronson at Why was Mick Ronson at the Rainbow never released? They re, they they filmed Mick Ronson as a solo artist uh, did a, an entire concert at the Rainbow Theater in the UK, and you know what they did from what I'm told, the master tape they taped over it. There's no record of it anymore, and supposedly the same thing happened. Supposedly, I cannot say with you know verifiable proof that the Wayne County film footage uh, is gone. Right. All gone with the wind. All all evidence uh, is gone for whatever yes. purposes. And um, Main Man was about David Bowie. And maybe Main Man should have only been about David Bowie and not present itself as an avenue for some of these other folks. Because believe me, Miss County would have been signed by somebody else in New York if not being tied up by Mainman man during that period of time when the, the New York dolls were making noise and others of that era were making noise. Uh, so it's, it's really unfortunate, you know? Yes, it is. It is and it is. when Mainman man folded, Cherry as well, Cherry was a brilliant public relations person. She was on late night TV with Tom Snyder. She was everywhere. And she's just one of the most brilliant public relations people that I know. And they all just kind of got swept away with the breeze when David decided to Divorce himself, not just from Angie, but from Tony DeVries, from Main Man, what have you. He just, and God bless him, he went on to bigger success than ever, and then bigger than that, and bigger than that. And he's a brilliant artist, and I am a fan of the work. But I am not a fan of the way certain circumstances and people who are friends of mine were handled during that era.
0: Yes, it was murky. It was murky. And how did you? Get like I with... said,
1: I talk. I talk a lot, by the no, way. No, no, it's it's fascinating. Notice. I mean,
0: with so with with someone like Angie, how did your relationship with her sort of develop? Because obviously, she, I think, if it wasn't for Tony freeze and Angie, as well as the other. People. Well,
1: Angie was great friends with Jane and Cherry. So as I started becoming a support valve for Jane and Cherry, Angie kept hearing them talking about me and made contact. And we became great friends when we finally made contact with each other. And in fact, she had told me in a radio interview she did, she had her own uh, radio interview show, which I don't think it's up and running. It's listed, but it's hard to get, where she said to me that she tried to contact me earlier. And the the, the, the floodgates were closed for her to make contact with Jim Lalumia I want to contact Jim Lelumia and what have you. And um, but we we are great friends for for years and years and years. And um, I became like kind of the adopted child of all the main man renegades, you know. At that, that period of time, I'm still in touch with her all the time.
0: Yes, and, absolutely.
1: Um, and she also, she also, I truly do believe that David Bowie would not be the David Bowie that we know if it were not for Angie. Directing him, pushing him, bringing him to see Pork, introducing him to the Warhol concept, introducing him to all these characters that then influenced him as well, that became the core of Main Man at a certain point. Angie was the mover and the shaker. She was the one saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you, you know she never gets the credit that she deserves. I'm giving yeah. that credit to her again right now. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting yeah. because um, there was an exhibition, David Bowie Is, and I went to see it. And, yes. And being, you know, having been obsessed with him, I realised there were various things that were omitted and Angie and Tony DeVries. Oh,
1: absolutely. Be, absolutely. Well, there. because he had a final say. He was what? still alive at the time.
0: But the just yes, actually I'm was, like, diverted. But I did an interview recently with a guy called Robin Mayhew, who okay, who was um, so basically he he had been in the sixties in various bands and then he became a sound engineer and then when he was seeing Bowie once at a very early gig the sound was terrible and Angie came up to him and said could you sort out the sound for Bowie so he did this. Um, so basically, he went on tour with Bowie for two years between 90, um, 1972 to 73, all, all, you know, UK, Europe, America, and Japan. And America,
1: because I saw him in America during that time. But, so he,
0: yeah. he sent me this a um, uh, uh, sort of a copy from the oh, wow. soundboard of the, the wow. concert at the end of the, um, the concert, because I just did an Sensation.
1: interview. Sensation. Wow, great. So I'll have to check that out. I have, you yeah, must, I must go okay. and get in touch
0: with Robin because he's he's still vaguely making music because he you know has got an amazing story. But it was Angie who who sort of he who t- tapped him on the shoulder and said, you know, you could could you kind of sort this out because we just haven't got a good story. It
1: was it was Angie who found Mick Ronson, as far as I recall. Angie was the one who pushed Mick Ronson when David Bowie really needed a Mick Ronson. He really and Lou Reed really needed a Mick Ronson when Lou. Uh, did the uh, Transformer album when he did uh, Walk on the Wild Side and the arrangements. And Ronson is another one who is standing in the shadows a lot of the time and does not get the credit. The Bowie legacy was built on the backs of people like Angie and Mick Ronson and the, the, the people from Pork who became components of Main Man. That's what attracted us, the glamour of it. Like I said, I'm a Hollywood fan. And Mayman became like the new Hollywood. It was a star factory. And the people working there themselves were stars. And would David Bowie have developed without that? Maybe he might have. To the level that he did? I don't think so. I think all, if you look at the British weeklies back then, like Melody Maker and Sounds and New Musical Express, they were writing as much about Vanilla and Miss County and Angie as they were about David, because it was not just about the music, it transcended the music. It was, mm. a, it was the glam scene. And he was considered having deposed the late Mark Boland. He had become the center of the universe and he had all these satellites floating around him. And those satellites made it all that much more glamorous. And I really don't think that he would have been in the position to make the next move of abandoning everybody which is what he did which i'm sure is considered a great business move and i can't fault it look what he turned into he turned into a worldwide global decade spanning superstar for decades so yes. from a business standpoint you can't fault it but from a non-business standpoint uh it's a bit malevolent in my book but yes. that's just having been there on the sidelines and sometimes more than just the sidelines, it was uh, a bit much, but God did bless you, him. He, he left a brilliant body of, of work behind. So, you know, but, but did you, I'm also, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I, I was going to say, did you also sort of see that next move when he gets into sort of young Americans and working with people like Ava Cherry and uh, Luther Vandross as well as, Colin? well,
1: look at, look at, look at the period of time. What was Bowie's big ambition? He wanted to be a star. In America. Now, Rebel, Rebel, which should have been a top 10 single, got no top 40 airplay. None of the singles, and Mayman was releasing some really ridiculous choices as singles in this country right after Space Oddity, because um, Ziggy had come and gone. They had released Starman as a single, it kind of got onto the Billboard Top 100 into maybe the 70s or the 60s, and just died right there. Yes. So they moved on to Aladdin Sane, and their single off of Aladdin Sane for America was Time. Now, Time is a great album track,
0: Mm. but it
1: was really not top 40 material for America. I was like, what is wrong with you? What are you, (laughs) and I had no problem going up. You can imagine, you see how I am. I had no problem, going up to Mainman and saying, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> and then they released his version of Let's Spend the Night Together as a single after that. It was a great album version. It was not great enough to be a single. I don't believe it was a single in the UK at all. Um, then when they came with, um, after Aladdin Sane, they came with pinups and they released Sorrow as a single in America. It was not enough. David needed something to really put him front and center because yes. Space Oddity only got that brief little window of exposure. And yeah. they were very homophobic at radio here. They refused to play. They wouldn't play Walk on the Wild side no. in New York, Top 40 radio. Even the edited version where they edited out the colored girls go do 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 because they felt that was a racist comment even for that time. There was an edited, an edited version. They wouldn't even play the edited version. They 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 felt that this music was going to turn the children of America into homosexuals. So what did they embrace instead? Disco, which turned the <laughs> children of America into homosexuals, much more likely than rock and roll records, but that shows you how ridiculous they were. Yes. So what did David do? He saw that disco was selling. R&B was selling, yep. so he got rid of the rock and roll. Fame goes to number one in America. Golden Years goes top 10 in America. David wanted to sell records. Somebody said to me up at Main Man, if he had to put on a cowboy hat and do a country song to get on the charts, if he thought that would work, David would do an amazing country and Western song <laughs> and present himself as a cowboy act. Cause he just wanted to sell records. And he was a brilliant songwriter and he made that transition flawlessly mm-hmm. from glam rock King to soul train. Yes. Dancing on soul train and doing the whole thing and fame and flawlessly, flawlessly. And Bowie fans were so dedicated that they didn't even flinch. They went right along with him through each change which is why i guess we got changes one bowie as the best up album because he went through changes he wanted to sell records and guess what he sure did
0: yes absolutely but then he sort of he was always good at picking up people like you know even that, that video there's Klaus Snowy, isn't there with him with that kind of suit that he's kind of well wanting. he
1: was david was downtown don't forget um David uh, met Iggy at Max's Kansas City. Danny Fields had Iggy sleeping on his couch in Manhattan and Danny Fields was constantly at Max's and um, had, had, uh, from what I recall, uh, interplay with Bowie and brought Iggy to Max's one night and Bowie and Iggy met at Max's Kansas City and suddenly, The idiot album and lust for life and everything that followed and the david iggy coalition i mean this was after raw power this was after the ill-fated stooges main man period because the stooges were also main man for that brief moment in time when the raw power album came out and david was supposed to produce it and remix it and he never really did or just Whatever the, I love the I loved the raw power album. I thought it was brilliant. I still listen to it all the time. Yeah, but then they kind of split for a while, and then suddenly David was in New York, and had the apartment in New York, and um, Danny Fields brought Iggy to Max's that night, and David and Iggy were reunited, and from that point on, their work together became quite illustrious and uh, and celebrated and brilliant work.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Max's really was Max's really was that um uh, that melting pot right there. Everything uh, uh, all the worlds of art, culture, theater, uh plays, uh poetry, sculpture, rock and roll, classical models from Vogue magazine all in one big cosmic uh log jam there. It was just incredible in in its heyday.
0: Yes, cuz there's another character I know you've mentioned, Lee Blackchilders. And what mm. was quite amazing was that I'd done an interview with a guy called, I think it's Smut, Smutty Smith. He was from, Yes, he was uh, he, uh, Levi
1: and the Rockettes. yeah He, right? he was yeah. from
0: Essex. He's, you know, he's there in a club, you know, just looking fantastic. And Lee sees him and thinks, great, I'm going to put him in a band and start a band. I'll take him mm. to New York. And it's like, well, he's never played an instrument. And it's like, well, have you got an instrument, Lee? And he's like, oh, we'll work that out later. I mean, an amazing story. And suddenly this young kid from Essex with, you know, you know, just, uh, you know, from an Essex kind of background without sort of that many resources behind him. He suddenly, w- w- you know, meets Andy Warhol, you know, um, the famous photographer, Robert Maplethorpe, you know, and part yes. of this scene getting a band sort of constructed Around this kind of New York scene. That that story is kind of boggling in itself, isn't it?
1: Yes. Well, Lee learned at Main Man and he saw a visual there and he saw an energy there. And he was very he was very, very good at that. And Lee, right up till the end, just before he passed, he was managing a band called the Star Spangles. Um at some of the Max's reunion shows that we were doing, we did uh one of the last things I did that Lee was involved in was with Yvonne. At uh, Don Hills, downtown, and Lee was really pushing these kids, the Star Spangles, and um, he re- he really was into the you know the whole thing. I mean, yes. he never managed Jane because they were just too close. I think it was too explosive at Lee telling Jane what to do uh, because they were roommates <laughs> they were friends. so that that would that would be a cosmic meltdown that I would not want to be privy to. But uh, Lee was brilliant. Lee was brilliant, and um, I brought him and Sherry out to uh, to uh, Long Island, to WBAB-FM, where I was bringing a lot of people. I brought Lou Reed out when his uh, Rock and Roll Heart album was released with a guy named Joel Martin. We would do Sunday night at midnight interviews, which we taped earlier, but we would run them at midnight. And I had Lee and Sherry on together with me, and boy, oh, boy. The floodgates opened with all the stories and what have you. And, yes. in, and in fact, going back to the Rebel Rebel thing with Bowie, um, Lee and Cherry uh, knew that Wayne had recorded an album of demos for Mainland, what was to be a proposed Wayne County album. And then nothing happened and it was put on ice. Then Bowie called, I guess, either Cherry or Lee and said, I'd like you to hear my new song. And he's playing it for them over the phone. And that new song was Rebel Rebel. And the moment Lee or Cherry, whoever it was, heard, you've got your mother in a whirl, she's not sure if you're a boy or a girl, they leaned away from the phone and said, he listened to Wayne's demos (laughs) to each other. So I wasn't the only one who recognized that Bowie was picking apples off the tree, which he was very good at with many, many people. He was always picking those apples off the tree and then shining those apples up real good and presenting them in a new form, which everybody is influenced by something. He didn't take a song and steal it. He conceptually absorbed what this artist or that artist was about and then created his own variation on a theme as the classical composers would say. And Rebel Rebel, as far as Lee and Cherry were concerned that night and had no problem saying it on the radio as well, that was a variation on a theme by Wayne County that they, they <laughs> the moment they heard Rebel Rebel and the whole type of rock and roll feel that it had to it, which is something that really wasn't on a Bowie record up to that point, um, it was not quite as Rolling Stonesy. It was much more Wayne County ish and the subject matter of Rebel Rebel. They knew right away the same thing that I had come to the conclusion of. Yeah. Yeah, David listened to to the Wayne stuff, and the Wayne stuff is not gonna get released so that David can shine once again.
0: Right. There in my right. opinion. And then it's a yeah. free country.
1: We all have our opinions, and that's my opinion.
0: Yes, well, absolutely. It's um yes, I'm
1: and I'll tell you something, when I go to Barnes and Noble's bookstore and they have all the Bowie books on display, I will always go and dig and look up Rebel Rebel, and I can't tell you how many times they now mention Wayne or Jane County in the same paragraph as Rebel Rebel. So I think I made a little bit of a wave when I first started talking about that, and then it started appearing in other publications. Yeah. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And David actually denied it in a magazine called Seconds. In a magazine called Seconds, someone brought the Wayne thing up and he said, I never had any fascination with Wayne County. I only met Wayne County twice. Now, you only met Wayne County twice, but there's a picture of the two of you, which we have on the Glam Central, which is one of my Facebook pages, up at the Plaza Hotel, the night that the Ziggy Stardust show hit Manhattan with David and Wayne County in a discussion together. Wayne was present at the taping of the 1984 show, uh, which was a US television spectacular. Yes, And Wayne was front and central in the, the back room. Wayne was a regular visitor to David and Angie's flat along with the rest of the pork cast. They were up there all the time. So how would, and th- those are just a few handfuls, only met twice, don't you realize we don't all have dementia. We have <laughs> memories. I mean, but it seems like when he would get angry at a situation, he would try to rewrite history and people who didn't know the full history would go, yeah, he only met that, that, that person twice. That's yeah. And you know, but those of us who are around know that it's, it's a slightly different saga and hmm. having said all that, and I'll say it again, Bowie was brilliant. The work was brilliant. Everything is derived from something. But sometimes, give the dog a bone. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Throw a few scraps to, you know, I mean, and he seemed incapable of doing that. With a few exceptions. With Aggie, he would always come back. Even after the raw power in Bregoglio, they did Reunite after the meeting at Max's and did the RCA albums. So with certain people where he felt, yeah, and the connection with Iggy went on for decades. So that's, but there were many others where that was not the case. Yes. He but then pick you... one of those apple, he'd pick one of the apples off the tree, eat that apple and keep walking. And uh, God bless him. I guess it worked for him. Yeah. <laughs> go so ahead.
0: I was going to say, but you also, you go from sort of being a, a journalist to then also wanting to be in a band, which is quite an amazing jump, isn't it?
1: Well, I think I mentioned at the beginning of this that I was in theater in, in school, that I was the very out there person. Yes. And, I, I, and, you know, coming from my background, I always had like a low opinion of myself. I was made to feel almost like an outcast because of my differentiation from everybody else in my house, from everybody else in my neighborhood. And it was only when I started getting exposed and meeting all the people in the city and my theatrical Ambitions were coming to the fore. And then suddenly punk happened. Punk was starting to show its head towards the end of the 70s. And John Holmstrom had written an editorial in issue number one of Punk Magazine called Death to Disco Shit. I thought it was a fascinating article. And I felt that disco was eating up all the airplay that was being denied in America to glam and then later to punk. So I created the Death to Disco button based on John's editorial. John was not happy at the time. In a follow-up issue of punk, he did a Death to Jim Lalumia editorial. (laughs) We have since kissed and made up, we're good now. But it then dawned on me when a band on Long Island, a local band called Twisted Sister, who you may have heard of since then, I'm sure, Yes. uh, They went into a record store that was selling my buttons and suddenly they were performing at the Mad Hatter of Stony Brook down the road from me doing a uh, I I Hate Disco song. So I said, now, wait a minute, that's my thing. Now, Jane County had released the Max's Kansas City song, 1976, where she name checks all the groups that play Max's and at the end she runs down, who's playing there these days? Oh, the Talking Heads, Patti Smith, this, There's a whole grocery list of names. And at the end, she says, there's this new group that everybody's talking about called the Psychotic Frogs. She name checks that name in the song. There was no such group. It was just a crazy name that Jane made up to go along with all the crazy names of the other bands that were on the scene. Mm. I was managing a local band who were going nowhere. I said, I've just written a song about Disco Sucks. And Jane County has a record out where she talks about a band called the Psychotic Frogs, which doesn't exist. But it's getting publicity worldwide because everybody bought that Max's 76 album. And lots of people worldwide heard that name and thought there really was a Psychotic Frogs. (laughs) So guess what? Jimmy LaLumia and the Psychotic Frogs were born with Jane's full blessings because it was a fictitious name that she just made up. But I knew it had built in public relations value for everybody listening to that Max's record, where Jane name checks the Ramones, the Heartbreakers, Talking Heads, and this new group everybody's talking about called the Psychotic Frogs, they really thought Jane was talking about a real band. It was built in publicity for the Death to Disco single, which put me on the map. We were written about in Billboard, Rolling Stone, Downbeat Magazine, Melody Maker, uh, Martin Birch, uh, not Martin Birch, Ian Birch, made us a single of the week at Melody Maker, all on a little homemade 45 that I did locally on Death Records with my friend James Nippo Antonucci, who started the Death Records label. And Death to Disco to this day is still written about, is still treated in an iconic manner. And I had to learn how to be in a band really quickly because (laughs) I just went into the studio and did the record. There was no real band. And then suddenly we're getting booked locally And then suddenly we're getting booked in Manhattan. And then suddenly we're booked at Max's Kansas City through the good graces of Peter Crowley. And suddenly I'm doing a gig at Max's where Cherry comes up to me and says, you know, me and Donna Destry, when you're playing, let us come up, we'll do an encore with you. We'll do some fun songs like Twist and Shout and Boys. So suddenly I've got Cherry Vanilla and Donna Destry are going to join me on stage at Max's. I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) So what happens? Jane County flies in from Berlin that night, comes into Max's and says, Cherry's going up with Jim. Well, if Cherry's going up with Jim, then I'm going up with Jim. So now suddenly Jane County is joining us. There's a picture of us up on Facebook, which you may have seen of me surrounded by Vanilla County. And the late Johnny Thunders. Now, Thunders was at Max's that night, (laughs) and I had tried to help him a number of times, but he had various difficulties, which are worldwide well known. We're not gonna go into what they are. When we were sitting downstairs at Max's, he fell asleep on me while I was speaking to him, and I stormed out. I was like, nobody falls asleep on me when I'm speaking. So I had had it with him, but when he saw that Donna, Sherry and Jane were coming up with me. He came up to me very politely. And if you look at the picture of him on Facebook or on any of the pages where it's posted, he's as contrite as a little dormouse. And it, he asked me, can I come up with you? Now, Johnny <laughs> Thunders never asked anybody, can I come up with you? He would just jump on stage in the middle of somebody's set and just take over and push them out of the way. He politely asked. So suddenly, the three artists that I worshiped, I loved Johnny Thunderson, The Heartbreakers, I loved Cherry from The Main Man Days and her great albums that she put out on RCA. Wayne County, it goes without saying. And suddenly, the three of them, along with Donna Destry, the three of them would join each other on occasion, on stage, but the three of them performing together never happened before and never happened again. They joined me that night on stage for the encores Twist and Shout and Boys, which are available, by the way, on Spotify on my Live at Max's uh, album, which is up on Amazon Music and what have you. And Thunders actually took the microphone away from me. And he actually sings Twist and Shout. But then he hands the mic back to me to do Boys. And John plays alongside me. Jane, Cherry and Donna are back up. Girls and the psychotic frogs are playing, and it was a it was a historic night for Max's, and I could not believe that the three these were the three iconic figures of Max's in '75, '76 as glam was morphing into punk. Mm. Was Johnny Thunders, Wayne was still Wayne County at the time, and Cherry were the biggest headliners in New York at that time. The Ramones were just coming up, Talking Heads were just coming up but it was the transition characters who were making their way over. And suddenly they're all on stage with me. And fortunately I got Bobby Belfiore, the sound man at Max's to record it. So it's captured on tape that it actually exists. Yes. So that to me was, I mean, that was like Godhead for me. I could not believe, <laughs> and people could not believe that they were all up there with me on their very best behavior ever. <laughs> Nobody wanted to piss off Jim. I thought that was very funny, and John was trying to make it up to me for having fallen asleep on me downstairs. So yes. I think I got the best out of that deal. Yeah,
0: that was amazing. So then, I mean, oh, there's
1: there's so much, so much. <laughs> you know, I've got to write a book. I think I really do.
0: Well, I know because even
1: the we could the guy... go, we, we could go on for hours, you know, uh, with with stories. But
0: this this is true. Actually, we haven't even gotten into the eighties, have we? Um... <laughs> so I mean again you know one thing that's always you know as I was saying sort of boggled me it boggles are the people who managed to sort of navigate and survive this and, and obviously New York has this reputation of you know horrendous drug problems and people sort of being casualties left right and center and and you know dropping dead quite quickly you managed right. to you managed to sort of n- navigate all this again you know into another decade I mean again how did you manage to do this
1: I was a good little Italian boy from Lake Ronconcoma out on Long Island. I was not in Manhattan. I was Cinderella. I would come into town and I'd get back home before the chariot turned back into a pumpkin, if you know what I mean. Right. I always kept, I always literally kept my nose clean. I would smoke some pot. I would drink a little bit, but no needle ever touched my arm. Nothing funny ever went up my nose. I was too full of myself to leave myself exposed in that way. And I had become enough of a fan of myself, which I had never been. I had always felt like I was getting away with something. And by the time of the late 70s, I found that what you have to do, what we all have to do, is become fans of ourselves and realize We have worth. We're making a statement just as you make with your program that you do. Mm. We have every reason to celebrate ourselves, that we're being heard somewhere right at this moment. And so I had no need for drugs. And uh, as a result, I'm 69 next month. But people look at me and say, you certainly don't look 69. And you're certainly not acting like you're a year away from 70. But I am. And I think part of the reason is I avoided all of that. I never had any desire. I never wanted to have to be picked up off the floor and dragged into a room somewhere that had no appeal to me whatsoever. So, yeah, thank you for noticing. But, um, yeah, I, the most I would do is smoke a joint every once in a while.
0: Well, there
1: you go. Usually, having disastrous effects on a psychotic frog show, <laughs> but um, people will still talk about some of the shows where, when I would get high from smoking pot, the show would just go sideways, and the band would be like, "What the fuck is he doing now?" But people still talk about the show. so I guess I guess I left a bit of an imprint, you know.
0: Yes, and and, and I'm also-
1: still here to talk about it. Well, absolutely. And since that time. I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, and I was going to say, what was the kind of lifespan of the band after that kind of the live shows that you did from Max's and a couple of EP's? Well,
1: first of all, the Psychotic Frogs lineup, with the exception of Pete Scarlatta, who was my bass player and who took all my wacky lyrics and turned them into songs, we went through a number of lineup changes because I think, in all honesty, especially on Long Island, I don't think they really got what I was doing, the boys in the band. What they did know was that I knew how to get the name of the band into Rolling Stone and Billboard magazine and the New York Daily News and the Melody Maker. And so they were getting attention, Mm -hmm. which is fully understandable that they could show off who they are. But unfortunately, I don't think that they really got the idea of the band. And as a result, it never really took on a band identity. It was Lumia running around out front like a complete lunatic. And the band trying their best to crank out the rips and keep up with it. And God bless all of them. I had some of the most talented musicians in the world, in this neck of the world, working with me. But unfortunately, I don't think they really got what it was about. And um, as a result, I still uh, will ha- do pickup shows. Peter Crowley has had a-, a tendency to be doing Max's reunions, Survivors Parties, mm-hmm. which constantly always takes on new ramifications what with the late sil sylvain just passing away recently and walter lure of the heartbreakers passing away not too long ago um it's getting harder and harder to do these reunion shows because we've lost so many people and you never you know you never know what's next yes but absolutely. um but i have i have put together uh more current versions of the psychotic frogs peter suggested to you were set as the Psychotic Frogs. You were a Max's band. The name is associated with Max's. So we still do it. Um, we've done a series of Max's reunion shows at the Delancey Downtown at the Bowery Electric. And also I've done shows with Yvonne uh, for the Max's Foundation where I emcee the shows. And so in some cases I emcee and then come back out as the band and then emcee again. So I guess the, uh, the fact that I have no problem remaining verbal as I guess you've come to figure out at this point, <laughs> they put to good use. Just give Jim a live mic and put him up there. We'll come back an hour later. He'll still be talking, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I keep myself busy that way when I, when I'm not in healthcare during the daytime.
0: Well, absolutely. I'm like and, and just kind
1: of daytime. It's a daytime world and a nighttime world. And you know,
0: Yes, I'm sorry, well, what were you trying to say? I was going to just say, you know, how did you then sort of navigate the last couple of decades? Because obviously the 70s, you packed so much in and, and have been involved in so many things. But then obviously life continues and scenes change. Life
1: continued. And what happened, and, you know, I was always in working for record retail as well, as I told you with Sam Goodies, where I became a manager. And then eventually opened my own store. Um, what happened was, as a good, devoted Italian boy, my mom became very ill and got to a point where she could not be left alone at home. So I had to choose between my store and mom, and I chose mom. I closed the store, brought all the records home with me, which I now sell on Discogs since vinyl is back in fashion again. Yes. And I did all the things for my mom uh, that needed to be done. She had dementia. She had congestive heart failure. She needed to be fed. She needed to be washed. She needed to be changed. She needed someone to hold her hand. And I did. And when she passed, a relative of mine said, Your mom gave you a gift on the way out the door. And I didn't realize what that was, but it was a career in healthcare because I felt compelled to continue doing what I had done for my mom for other people. And as a result, I have. A wonderful pension plan now, after thirteen years of working for the state of New York. Uh, my salary went up so that I have a great social security um, you know, type of thing. It, that was that was byproduct, that was a byproduct of it that I got a real job that would always be in demand. And, and I've got news for you With what I've done, I can still keep working till I'm ninety because as we know, The shape of the world right now, health wise, what I do in the daytime is very much in demand. And I have to gauge myself because I'm not exactly a kid anymore. Mm. But it has kept me physically fit because I'm always when you're a male aide, you're the one always picking the 300 pound guy up off the floor that fell. Or trying to create to keep the two guys that are trying to beat each other up from beating each other up because they're confused and they don't know why they're arguing, but you've got, and it has kept me very physically fit. It has kept me very mentally fit, but I am going to be stepping back a bit because I am a year away from 70 and I don't want to become a broken toy. And in that line of work, it's very easy. One misstep, you damage an arm, you damage a leg, you damage your back doing it. And I don't intend to let that happen. Yeah. So I intend to always I always, I intend to always keep a hand in there and I do owe that to my mom because I really don't think if I didn't do what I did for my mom that I would have found my way into this line of work. It just kind of led me there yes. as the person who said to me, Your mom gave you a gift on the way out the door. And then I finally understood what they meant, which was a daytime career, which is very fulfilling and pays the bills and has a pension and all the other things that nothing else I had ever done would have generated. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm still writing for Good Times Magazine. I'm still writing songs. In the past few years, I did Leave My Pussy Alone with Jane County, which you may or may not have seen on YouTube. It was an animal rights um, track, which has gotten great attention. I wrote I Gender Tea, Jane, as well, which was a trans anthem that I wrote for her. I wrote a song called Junkie See, Junkie Do, which I recorded as a solo artist, all in collaboration with a guy named Mark DiCarlo. They're all available on YouTube, they're all available on Amazon. Danny Garcia, who's doing a Max's documentary film right now, (laughs) I'm allowing him to use the music in his documentary film, so it'll probably be reaching a few more people. When his documentary comes out, he's speaking to everybody that had anything to do with Max's, and um, there'll be a, that will be out sometime, hopefully this year or at the very latest, early next year. Danny okay. does some great documentaries, which he's done on Sid and Nancy, and which he's done on um, Steve Baiters, and uh, there's a whole bunch of things Danny Garcia has done. Yeah. So I'm very excited to have been included in interview form with him. And you're also making these tunes available to be included. And even Death to Disco is gonna make an appearance in the Max's film, because Max's is where it was all happening at that time for the psychotic frogs that led to everything else happening thereafter. Yeah. So my hat is still in the ring. I'm still, you know, it ain't over yet. No, absolutely. I'm still a player.
0: You did mention about possibly writing a book. Has that sort of, has that, Is that still an idea or have you started sort of mapping out?
1: It is an idea, but it's an overwhelming idea because there's so much. Because I never stopped. It would have to be growing up as a different kind of kid in a rural area and how pop culture affected me. Learning the how to's of pop culture by writing about it and getting invites and Mm. becoming part of that crew and then learning how to make the transition from writing about it to being written about, to be the one that's the focus of a feature interview, to be the one that people call you and ask, can we interview you for this publication, and everything that goes along with it. And, and some of the stories that I told you, there's tons and tons. I just recounted the Elizabeth Taylor incident between myself and Miss Taylor at Carnegie Hall in the 70s, I was invited to go see a disco group called Brass Construction Let's see. at Carnegie Hall. Uh, they had a, a, a hit single called Movin', and I went with my photographer, John Goldia, who took great shots of Max's back in the day. So we go to Carnegie Hall, and we have, and I did not realize at the time that Carnegie Hall had more than one event happening at the time, that there were multiple theaters where something's happening here and something's happening there. So we go upstairs, We was, I was smoking a little pot on the way in, because that's as far as I went, as I told you. Mm-hmm. We go upstairs, because I wanted a drink, I needed a drink or two, put one or two away before going to see this disco group. So I chose this grand table right in the center of the dining area. And I'm sitting there with John. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, a fancy waiter comes over to me and says, Excuse me, sirs, I hate to interrupt, but Miss Elizabeth Taylor has requested the use of this table if you don't mind. Now I was drinking and I had smoked some pot. So I was like, Oh, is that so? Well, then Miss Elizabeth Taylor can come ask me herself because I figured they were trying to clear the room. Mm. And Taylor and the entourage, she was married to a congressman at the time, Congressman John Warner and her Social and Social Security. Secret Service was there with them because it was a congressman and his wife.
0: Yeah.
1: So I figured I'll get up in a minute or two, but I, of course I had to let out a Lumia. Miss Elizabeth Taylor can come ask me herself. I had no idea she was standing right around the corner. And I heard this enormous laugh come from around the corner. And I said to myself, oh my God, my mom is gonna kill me. She comes sweeping into the room and she was very big at the time. She had some weight issues by then. Yeah. Come sweeping over to the table, arms swept going, would you be so kind? I almost passed out. <laughs> Cleopatra. Elizabeth Taylor yes. is standing in front of me. And she squeezed into the table and sat alongside of us. And when I came home, I told my mom, and she said, You're a jackass. I said, <laughs> No, ma, I got to hang out. No, I have numerous stories like this, but that's the one someone had posted a picture of her recently on Facebook because it was her birthday. And it was a glamorous shot of her in her heyday as one of the most stunning beauties of all time. And it all came fl- flaring back to me, the Carnegie. They were there to hear a string quartet. Yes. Which was happening in another part of Carnegie Hall. I didn't think they were there to see brass construction. <laughs> but at the, at the moment that I heard that laugh, and then she comes sweeping in with this grand gesture, I was like, oh my God. Because I had never met a big Hollywood star before. No. And I had seen all her films. And I was just being flippant because I was drunk. And she heard that Miss Elizabeth Taylor can come and ask me herself. And she comes sweeping into the room, laughing her head off. She thought it was the funniest thing she ever heard. <laughs> I've got a lot of stories that could be included in this book. So yes, uh, yeah, I am I, thinking I, about I, it. It would be a question.
0: So then just Thank lastly, you. If, if you could have said something to your, an 18 year old self starting out back in those, that time, which was probably the 60s. I mean, if it was a couple of bullet points, you could have just said, look kid, I know you're doing well, you've got the, you know, whatever. But just kind of, there's a few things, you know, I would do or not do. What, what kind of would, would kind of jump out? You know, what would you say, look, I've just got a couple. I this. would
1: tell me, I would tell me what I mentioned a short while ago, which I did not at the time. Love yourself, which I didn't. I was actually feeling very downtrodden as a kid out here because I was unusual. I did not fit the mold of everybody else in the area. My tastes were different. My lifestyle was different. And I was reminded of it every day. And you either sink or you swim. And I learned how to swim using my ability to speak, my ability to write, my ability on a stage, which is where I came to life in school, in theater, in plays. That's where I found approval. Mm. Going back to the earliest grades. I would be the one in the play that would be the showstopper because I'm over the top, among other things. So I would have told myself back then, but I'll tell you, I'm glad things developed as they did because I learned to respect and to love myself as time went by. As I realized I have value, I have worth because I was made to feel that I did not. And not everybody survives that. Mm. And so I would say to those people who might be watching this or hearing this right now, rather, that may feel that way, don't feel that way. Find what it is that you do and do it. And anybody that tells you differently, tell them to go fuck themselves. Because at, you come into this world alone and ultimately, you leave this world alone, unless you're on a terrible jetliner, which is going down, and then maybe a few more people. But um, <laughs> I'm not making I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying you still are leaving the world alone. Yes. Um, so so celebrate yourself and love yourself. And I and I and I never told myself that until many decades later. I always felt like I was getting away with something. And then I realized. Somewhere along the line, maybe in my 30s or 40s, I don't even know when exactly. uh, Even during the psychotic frogs period, I felt like I was getting away with something. And the people that surrounded me made me feel like I was getting away with something. I really belonged in Manhattan, but I wasn't. I was on Long Island. And it was a very different story. But that which does not kill you makes you stronger, so we are told. (laughs) And I am stronger.
0: Yes, well, absolutely. Thankfully. I mean, my God. Thankfully. Hidden 70 and rocking. This is, this is the best. But of- you'll
1: get the first copy of the book, I promise.
0: Oh, my God. This would be fantastic. Yes.
1: But it's, it's going to take, take a while. <laughs> I'm going to need inspiration to actually sit down and do it. But since I am going to be retiring to an extent from the healthcare gig, and I'm just going to do a little pickup work, I will now have the time to actually sit down and formulate what a book would entail and how long it would take. Because the idea of even um, a small small volume, I'm trying to find a book, because I'm surrounded by books and stuff here. It seems overwhelming to me to write an entire book. Mm. But then I realize, not to downplay it, but Cherry wrote a book jane's written a book everybody's written a book it can be done if you're a max's veteran yes so so i think you have helped to inspire me as well david
0: well i know uh, and I, I and i just i re- think it's
1: time i think it's time look
0: i just got i got I angie i just got angie's reprinted book recently as well so um
1: backstage passes yeah yeah great book it's gotta be book. done hasn't it yep. and also, i mean and when,
0: yep. And I did an interview with um, Ava Cherry. bizarre. Oh, there's so many cherries in Bowie's life. Ava, and she said uh, <laughs> she's about to um, write her book as well. So I think well, it's, it's a way of archiving what we've done and processing it. And then you kind of can make a bit more sense of it and probably put some things to bed a bit more and sort of...
1: Well, for me, it'll be a form of therapy as well. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It so, will. yes, I will. I will embark upon that, I promise. Yeah. I will start to piece that together. There'll oh, be a lot in there. That'll be I really wish I had kept a journal because I'm sure there's so much I've forgotten. But yes. I think once I start writing, things that I forgot will fall into place, hopefully. Yeah. And, like uh, and people that I know from the olden days will remind me of things that I don't remember anymore. Uh, not from dementia, but just this, it was too much. It was too much. I was always in the middle of everything. If I had kept a journal, the journal would be a mile a mile high, because I was just everywhere, doing everything constantly. Um, and the <laughs> night that we uh, the night that we did the Elizabeth Taylor thing at Carnegie Hall, we then zoomed over to CBGB's right after, and we played pool with this up and coming girl group that were brand new called the Runaways, <laughs> and in fact. John Angolia was shooting pool with Lita Ford, and I got into a staring contest with Joan Jett that night, and they were brand new. They had just arrived in New York. And of course, as we know, the runaways made some noise thereafter. So there's a a lot of having been in the thick of all of that day after day. And uh, it'll take some time and I'll have to make notes, but I, I, I promise I will start to work on that. That's
0: great. Well, actually, last year, I was going to just say, because Donna Gillespie brought her book out and also Lawrence May has brought his book out last year as well. So. Yeah.
1: Well, that's the thing these days, I guess, to, it's, uh,
0: it's the to, thing. Do,
1: a, to do a book. Yeah. Give
0: yourself, give yourself but, two uh, years of hard writing.
1: Well, that's exactly probably what it would take. But if I write the way I speak... A book would probably fill up in 24 hours, as I guess you've figured out by now. (laughs) And I do write the way I speak. So once the river starts to flow, it's going to be a tidal wave uh, because that's basically the way I work. So what I would probably do is recite and tape myself talking about the old days and then use those tapes as source material because speaking freely about it as I am with you right now, things come to mind like the Elizabeth Taylor situation, for example. And I know if I just turn on a tape machine and just start talking into the tape machine about this year and this event and where I was in 1971 and 1984, 2001 when we did the Max's reunion, 1965 when I first discovered that I could write a complete paragraph um, and just coalesce it all, it would probably be done very quickly, actually. Excellent. We'll see. We'll see. I will keep you posted.
0: Well, this is good. This is we need. We need good things to look forward to. Let's face it. <laughs> All
1: right. I hear you. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> anyway, look. Thank you ever so much for this. And when I uh, put it together, I'll um, I'll send you a link, and then you can always put it on your social media platform sites and. Uh... Oh
1: yeah, I would love to share it with everybody, and they'll say, "See, he never shuts up." <laughs> it'll be. It'll be... <laughs> Um, but yes absolutely and thank you thank yeah, you yeah well thank for you it's, it's
0: amazing and, and well i'm just so pleased we're also we're still feeling so positive after such a strange few years anyway this is good Yeah,
1: everything is going to be everything is going to be better and you stay safe and you stay well
0: yes keep in touch
1: good, absolutely i promise take good care and thank you take care bye-bye
0: and now got it Oh, and that is the end of the interview. I love keeping that last bit in. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Jimmy Lallumier to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other stuff. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. you will be there. Keep it positive. No negativity here. Also, I've been doing all these interviews for years. You can find those, all archived and beautiful, on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 show again. It's that simple. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.